0: Okay, now back with me here on Next on the Tee is Bob Byman. Bob is from Poughkeepsie, New York. He played his college golf at Wake Forest, where he lettered all four years from 1973 to 1976. He was named All-American three times and All-ACC twice. He helped the Demon Deacons to -to back-to-back national championships in 1974 and 75. His 73.25 career stroke average is still one of the tops in school history. He tied for first at the 1974 ACC Championship, and he finished second the following year behind teammate Curtis Strange. He also took medalist honors at the 1974 Furman Intercollegiate Tournament, the 1975 Iron Duke Intercollegiate Tournament, and the 1976 Duke Spring Invitational. He turned pro in 1976. Bob played a ton of golf over on the European Tour and had a great deal of success over there. In 1977, he won three national Opens in Sweden, Holland, and New Zealand, and finished fifth on the European Order of Merit. He would go on to win the Dutch and Scandinavian Opens twice, including in 1978 by one-stroke over Nick Price. Earned his PGA Tour card in 1978. He won the Bay Hill Invitational in 1979 in a playoff over John Schrader. Later in 79, he would finish tied for seventh at the Open Championship at Royal Litham in St. Anne's. By 1985, he started turning his attention to teaching the game. Bob is now a wonderful golf instructor at a golf school out in Las Vegas, and I'm very excited. He is back with me again on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bob, thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Absolutely, Chris. Pleasure being with you.
0: Bob, I wanted to start our time today by talking about your transition from playing out on the PGA Tour to being one of the top instructors in the game now. What was that transition like for you?
1: Well, uh you know, it it was it was quite a challenge because you know, as a professional golfer, um you know, you're on your own. You're uh everything is is in your world and you're and you're doing everything for yourself. It's it's dictated to play uh you know, at a very very high level that you're you're quite a selfish guy. And, uh, of course teaching, you have to be completely self-less because you are there for the student mm-hmm. and their benefit. So it took a little bit of time to, uh, to adjust to that. I would say, uh, a year or two before I really got, uh, you know, the hang of it. And, uh, you know, you mentioned that I, I got started in teaching around 1987, actually started in 1985 by the time i uh nineteen eighty seven came around i was uh, i you know i had some really nice uh positions uh that i that i uh you know and and locations that i was teaching at and and it really started to develop uh then so um, you know one of the things that helped me as well was that i was you know i played a lot of sport and a lot of team sport. Uh, baseball, football, basketball. So I think that helped me, uh, as well to make the, uh, the adjustment over time because, uh, you know, as a, a student, a, a student teacher relationship becomes, uh, you know, a team situation. So, uh, I made the adjustment and, uh, have done very, very well.
0: Bob, like I mentioned in your intro, You know, Wake Forest, you guys won back-to-back national championships in 74 and 75. Young kids dealing with a lot of mental pressure at that level. I kind of want to talk about how how, now when you get a young player in that is competing at the highest levels, at the whether it's AJGA or at the college level, or even for those of us that are trying to go out and win our club championships, how do you help people deal with the kind of pressure that they're not used to?
1: Well, you know, the ability to play at a, at a, a high level, let's say wherever, whatever stage you are and whatever environment you're in, you know, you're never going to play better than the wildest imagination that you have for yourself. Okay. So I tell everybody to dream big and imagine yourself in these situations long before you get there. So a lot of this, is you know uh, your ability to actually see yourself in these future situations, and uh, of course it comes out in in a positive manner. So uh, you know to to get there, you know you have to do the work. You have to have the you know the, the physical components. You know I call those time-tested fundamentals. You have to be able to know how to play the game, um, and that generally has has four components. You know, uh, in, in every successful shot that you play, you have to see the shot before you uh, actually uh, execute it. So there's a, an image that you have to have of the successful shot. And then you have a feeling, I call it feel madry of the motion that you need in order to create the image that you have. Then you have to be able to set up so that you can actually perform the feel Okay? And then you have some kind of a thought, either a, uh, you know, a, a, it's an attitude or an emotion, or it, it can be as simple as, okay, you can do it, let it go, or... uh you know you can have uh you know thought inside of your golf swing uh and we can talk further about that as we as we go on but uh yeah there's there's a, a, a physical there's a mental and then you go ahead and you have to be a great evaluator so as soon as you're able to anticipate your result to some level Then you have the uh, ability to actually plan your roundup and plan what you're about to do during uh, each individual hole and then in each individual shot. And as soon as you can plan, then you can manage. And as you manage your your shot, you, you create the result, and then you have an evaluation period, and then you assess it. If it's what you want, you keep going. If it's not what you want, then you make an adjustment and go on from there. And you just keep going until, uh, you know, the round is completed or the tournament is completed. So, you know, all of these things are like a big funnel of acceptability, a funnel of parameters. So, you know, to shoot a 100, the parameters, the funnel is very wide, let's say, up at the top. And as you get lower and lower and lower down into the, you know, let's say top 10 in the world, the parameters of of acceptability in the physical, mental, and then, uh, uh, raising the level of your game, uh, area is, uh, is very, very narrow. And that's why you see the greatest players, the historically great players, uh, of all time have very, very similar things that they have done. They've expressed them differently because they all have different uh, bodies and temperaments and all that stuff, but, uh. They all generally do the same thing. So if you stay within that, you have the opportunity to create your optimal ability uh, of play. So, uh, you know, we work on all things depending on where the level of the golfer is and what he wants for him, himself or herself. So as you get better, uh, you know, many times, uh, you know, as a teacher, I'm, i I'm one thing we give you information and you, we, we try to work that into your game. But as your coach, then, uh, you know, some of these things I take on, you know, sometimes a, a John Wooden attitude and sometimes a Bobby Knight attitude, depending on the, on the, on the student and, and what they need at that particular time to reach the goals that they want.
0: So, Bob, talk about how that manifested itself in you and how you're able to bring that out of yourself and your experiences, because I got to imagine at some point, you're a really good high school player who now has an opportunity to go play at Wake Forest, which has a tremendous golf history. And then from there, you're you're beating Nick Price by a stroke. And from there, you're playing at Bay Hill in front of Arnold Palmer, who, oh, by the way, you got a scholarship, you got the Arnold Palmer scholarship to go play it at Wake Forest. So now you're playing in front of that guy in the first year of his sponsorship or hosting, if you will, the Bay Hill Invitational. And then the next thing you know, you're on the tee with Jack Nicklaus at Augusta National. How did you manifest all of that through yourself to be okay to be able to play and execute in those types of situations?
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. and. uh you know how do you how do you become uh you know a a really good player uh you know i was a uh, an excellent athlete i played like i said i played all sports if i hadn't played golf i probably would have gone uh, gone into uh, baseball and would have tried to play uh, professionally there but uh you know i had a physical skill and uh you know i my my work my practice my mental energy as a junior golfer kept getting reinforced because I won a lot, uh, you know, and then was able to win the USGA Junior and, you know, a a number of uh, of top uh, junior events at that period of time, won my state amateur a number of times. So I was like, uh, you know, feeling quite confident about myself and, uh, you know, Curtis, Strange and myself were, you know, recruited at the same time to go to go to Wake Forest. I was ranked the number one recruit. He was number two. So, you know, getting to uh, uh, Wake Forest was, you know, was was fabulous. Uh, and when I got there, I realized that, you know, Curtis was there. I didn't know he was there until almost nearly when I got there. And then of course Jay Haas was there and a guy named David Thor and, uh, you know, a few other guys that, that could really play and you could see that we had the opportunity to, to be the best team in the, in the country. And none of us really thought that much differently about it at that point. So, you know, did, did we all get nervous naturally for competition? Yes but to win the uh, the national championship the first time Curtis had to come through in the last round to make a a putt or two at the end we won the second time we won we just we just dominated so we just felt like we were the best and like i i mentioned earlier you know you're never going to perform better than your wildest dreams so we thought that we could dominate in that 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 second year because we were you know, we're defending champions and all of us were playing pretty well going into that event. So, and then we did, you know, uh, uh, Jay Haas actually won the, the event. Curtis finished third. I finished fourth. It was uh, incredible. You know, one, three, four finish. Jerry Pate was second for that event. So that just led you into, uh, future things that uh, in 1976, that summer I, I played very very well in amateur golf won the northeast amateur and another uh, uh, you know a a uh, finished high in in almost every uh, you know major amateur event that i played in and then i turned pro and then finished second in my first event so it was it was just a, like a natural thing i did not qualify for the tour in 1976 which brought me back to reality a little bit and that was fortunate because that laid the groundwork to play over in Europe. So, uh, But I went over to Europe to play and, you know, was still very, very confident. I was, a, you know, the winner in, in amateur golf and junior golf. So I was used to winning and was able to pull off a couple wins in the first five or six weeks that I was over there, got to play, uh you know, right next. To Sevi Ballesteros and Greg Norman and a number of, uh, Hugh Bayaki, uh, a number of really, uh, you know, very, very good players. And of course, a number of these guys, Sevy and, and, uh, uh, Greg became, you know, just, just fantastic golfers. So it gave me a lot of confidence. And then that, that natural progression of, 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 of ability to play and get comfortable in, in higher uh, pressure situations, uh, led me to the, uh, you know, winning at, at the Bay Hill Classic in 1979. And that was really my, probably the pinnacle. I didn't know it was going to be my pinnacle at that point. Uh, but it probably was It was the, you know, the greatest ball striking, uh, week that I had had. And I was, was able to, uh, to pull that off. You know, I, I played, uh, Quite nicely at the British Open in 1978. I think I a 16th or 17th, played with 70 the last round, but I, I got within three shots. The, uh, the last round, course of course, tournament, Nicholas, uh, won that tournament. And then uh 1979, I played a little bit better. I was third with like five holes to go and, uh, did not play particularly well at the end. That was at Royalist and St. Anne's. The wind was really whipping those last five holes. Or, you know, very, very tough. I finished seventh. So I, you know, it was very, uh, very good. And, uh, you know, as, as time went on, my physical fundamentals, uh, started breaking my, my body down. I was looking for help and, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, to really allow me to be everything that I could be in my own mind. And that was that I needed to make some, some physical adjustments in my swing, but I really couldn't get the information. Uh, really wasn't available back then. So I did the best I could, but it was really, you know, I was really off the tour in any world class manner, uh, you know, by 1984. So, you know, a lot of these things are, are, are just a, you know, a lot of hard work, uh, a good bit of talent and And doing what I said, i I, I was fabulous at the, the mental side of the game and and dealing with the ability to play each individual shot. Uh, I did that to a very, very high level. There were only you know the, the top players on on the planet that were able to do that a little bit better than me. But you know, I was able to beat them every once in a while, and that was a lot of fun,
0: <laughs> no doubt. And I I certainly want to get more into the mental approach and the technical aspects of the swing. But before we get off your career, you win Bay Hill, you are an Arnold Palmer scholarship player at Wake Forest. His first year is hosting the golf tournament. What was it like for you? And you talk about that being the pinnacle. And I could see, you know, based on everything that you've talked about so far, why that would be. But what was it like for you to stand next to the king and have have sort of your your career bubble up to this crescendo and have the King hand you the the trophy for the tournament he's hosting.
1: You know, that's very interesting. Uh, You know, you're diving into this a little bit. That actually goes back to 1972. I was 17 years old. I qualified for the U.S. Open in uh, in Colorado, went through the local and sectional uh, qualifies, won the sectional qualifying. And of course that was at 1972. That was at, at Pebble Beach. That was a, uh, uh, Jack Nicklaus won that. And Arnold actually finished third. So I'm at Pebble Beach trying to get a practice round under my belt. And I think this was on a, uh, pretty sure it was either on a Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it was on a Tuesday. And of course I didn't have a tea time. Didn't know you had to have a tea time. So. My my caddy and my father went up to the starter and said, you know, you know, my son is here playing. You know, he likes to play, and you know, just uh, he said, "Well, wait, we'll we'll put you in some somewhere." So half an hour went by. There's nobody like. There's no gallery around the first tee. If you ever been there, it's kind of a small area, and uh and then all of a sudden, it was it was ten deep. And my caddy comes back to me and says, uh, we're ready to go. So I go, Oh my goodness, what is on the other side of all these people? I walk up onto the first tee, and Arnold Palmer was there, Julius Boros and uh and and, and another one of his friends you, you wouldn't probably recognize. So I got to play in a practice round with Arnold and Julius Wow! Uh, at, at the beach. So That was the most nervous I have ever been at any time in my, uh, uh, you know, competitive career on that first tee. Cause Arnold like, why don't you go ahead, kid, go ahead and hit it first. And uh, I could barely get the ball on the tee. No doubt. Uh, And, and look, I was, that was the most simple, my game like ever was, I was really hitting it well. And, uh. You know, I had I, I was able to actually concentrate to the degree to, to make contact pretty well, and I hit the ball out in the right rough. And I was like, "Oh my goodness, I I, I hit it!" And uh you know, I was going to step off, and Arnold throws down another ball and says, "Hit another one." So okay, and I I hit the, the same. I push it into the right rough about five yards into the right rough, six yards into the right rough. And I hit the next ball like two feet from that one. It was the exact same move. I hacked that out. Got it on the, you know, just short of the green. I think I three-putted. So I made six on the first hole. From then on, I never missed the fairway and never missed the green. Made three birdies. Shot 71. And it was the finest round I, I will ever play. I, I, in my future, I, I would ever play on a U.S. Open golf course. Wind was blowing 15, 20 miles and I was about 55 degrees. And I made like a 20, 25 footer on the last pole to, uh, make birdie. And Arnold goes, wow, son, you can certainly stand on your own two feet. We shook hands. I went to the practice putting green afterwards and Arnold was there. And he mentioned, he says, wow, you know, I was really, uh, impressed by what you did today. Have you ever thought about Wake Forest University. And I said, no, I haven't. He says, well, I want you to to think about that and I will, uh, you know, put a good word in there for you. And that's how that happened. And so, Amazing. so when I was recruited by, uh, by Wake Forest and, and Jesse Haddock, I went and visited, told him that, uh, that story. He says, oh, ah, yeah, I know about that. Arnold had called me. And that's why I, I, I reached out to you and I got along with, with Jesse very, very well. And that's how all that happened. And then, you know, we did, we did nicely at Wake Forest. Uh, you know, the next time that I saw Arnold was on the, uh, Wednesday, maybe Tuesday, Tuesday of Bay Hill week. And I was playing a practice round with, Curtis and Jay and my brother. And we we're on the tee waiting on the first tee at Bay Hill. And Arnold and Jack come up on the tee. Like they're going to play behind us. And, uh, wind was blowing into you on 18 on that day. So it was a, it was a tough day. Indy on one, second shot on 18, too. And, uh, uh, I, I think I hit 17, 16, 17, maybe, I don't know, 18 greens. Fabulous round. One of the best rounds I've ever played. Shot 67. Just, uh, you know, killed all the guys in the game. But on the first tee, of course, those guys, Nicholas and, and Palmer got up on the tee and I was, Oh my God. Oh my God. And I just ripped it off of that tee and it was like, man, you're ready. You're, you this is, this is going to be your week. And of course, as you, know, as you, you can have those thoughts, but you have to have, it has to keep being reinforced. And the, and the, 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 the physical manifestation of my thinking and my play was reinforced enough. I was leading into the last day, uh, tied after the, uh, you know, 72 holes and then one on the second, uh, uh, playoff hole. So, uh, and then of course, <laughs> Arnold gives me, gives me the trophy at the end. It was like, holy moly. Well, wow, what a, what a great. Uh, you know, I thought that was going to be another little stepping stone for me, but it ended up being really the culmination of, of all my hard week, uh, work. I really never felt that well again physically. Uh, just the, the health of my body and then how everything together, the physical, physicality, the attitude, the focus and uh, the ability to play. That was probably, that was. You know, you look back. You know that that was that was the best I was able to do.
0: Well, wow, it's pretty darn amazing story, pretty darn special experience, and <laughs> a lot better yeah, than ninety nine point nine of us will ever get to experience. So that's a that's a fantastic <laughs> story.
1: <laughs> yeah, Bob. Let's get back
0: into the mental aspect of the game. Talk about what mind mapping is.
1: Well, mind mapping is. Uh, I can compare that to describe what it is. I, I'll compare what we generally do in the West here. We, When we're organizing data, we start up on the top left of a page and go left to right, up to down, and we write our information. Okay, so mind mapping is you organize your central idea and you have a big piece of paper and you put that in the middle of the page. And then every idea that comes off of is more specific, Is like a vein of thought, a vein of understanding away from that central, uh, locus point. And you can get as detailed as you want to be. So you, you know, you start with the trunk of the tree and then you go out to the, you know, the, 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 the big, uh, the trunk separates a little bit and then you get to bigger and bigger branches and then smaller and smaller branches and then you get to the, to the leaves and the tips of the leaves, and you can go as deep as you want to go. But... So I do that with all my students. Generally, you know, I'm... I'm You know, you... Until you get down into, you know, shooting in the mid-70s, it's fairly basic stuff. It's fairly basic. It's just uh doing it better and better and better. But as you get into the world-class play, now an awareness and understanding of of some of these things that are out on the smallest branches and out on the leaves and the tips of the leaves are important to understand. Now if you go out as a as a teacher, me, a teacher coach, and you pull somebody out and they're shaking their head up and down, I understand, I understand, I understand, and then all of a sudden they look at you with a blank stare or their head is like going left and right, you know you've gone at that particular moment in time a little bit too far from them. So all I do is just I just compress it down. and sometimes you have to compress it down back into the, the into the center of the of the mind map uh, where the most basic stuff is. So we're always pulsing out for greater and greater awareness and understanding. If things get too much for a player, you just compress it back down to the most basic stuff and you start again. And you try to find out what kind of, uh you know, uh, uh thought pathways uh, work you in, into these understandings. And you see if, okay, that's too much for me. I come back. You go down that pathway again of thought and idea. And all of a sudden, like, you can't get out there again. So you have to compress it back to get out there a different way. So good players have the ability to find their, uh, their best awareness and best play in a multitude of ways. And that's very, very important. I always, uh, took to heart, uh, you know, Jack Nicholas's attitude about going and, and becoming a, a player. In the end, you got to figure it out. You have to be able to figure it out on your own out there, because in the end, it's it's you and the your club and the golf ball and, and and the course and whatever situation you're in. So not everybody is playing their best all the time. You have to understand these things and how to come back to the to the central ideas and then work your way out again and work through these things so that you can figure it out during a round of golf. So uh I don't know that the uh, players have that that attitude so much today cuz they're used to having others uh available for them to give them their ideas like their caddy and and their teacher and all that stuff. So although you know my business is predicated on me being there to help them to do it, but I Take them down a pathway of being self-sufficient enough so that they can figure it out when they're on the golf course, when they're under pressure, coming down the last nine holes or the last three holes or the last shot of the day or the last putt of the day. So, uh you know, mind mapping is a fabulous way to organize data, fabulous way. And I use it uh very, very often.
0: So Bob, let's take that a step further. Talk about what layering and time sequence focus are.
1: Well, a lot of times when you, uh you know, well, let's see, how how would I go about uh, explaining that the best way for you? Let's uh, let's describe this this way. When when I work with a student, you know, I get a I, I've watched them hit three or four balls. And, uh, you know, I get a picture of what their, their ideal motion would be and what, what it would be. And it's like a a sculptor seeing the angel, the, the perfect angel inside of the block of granite. And then he takes away the marble to allow everybody else to see the angel. Okay. So I see the perfection of what they're about to do and then we begin. Well, you can't do this, so you have to make that adjust or that adjust or that adjust. So in the beginning, I look for individual skills. If I ask you to do one thing, let me see if you have enough awareness and ability to do that one thing. Okay, so now I've seen that. And now then I ask for uh, 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 another individual skill, and then another, and another. All these things are interrelated, but I don't want to overwhelm the, the, the student with multiple things to consider it, at one time. Now, once we're able to do those individual things on a fairly regular basis, then we start putting these, we pair these things off. And that would be uh the ability to to layer these things on each other. To pair them off and uh, uh, use one, two, three, four, five, whatever they are. You have a concept of them. They're so ingrained in your mind that you can think about these things in in very small units of time, and they become layered together uh, in one concept often. And uh, we can go further into that, but uh, you know, so. Layering is the ability to take individual ideas, organize them in a sequential time sequence manner, and then apply those to either your learning or your ability to play. And that leads you into uh, time sequence focus. Uh, you know, when I grew up uh, playing and my experience in golf, uh, you know, Jack would say, well, I, you know, in interviews, while well, I was able to say, you know, thinking about this, 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 and this in my, uh, uh, starting position. And then in the swing, I, you know, I thought about something in the beginning of the swing, something in the transition, you know, something, you know, through the ball and then whatever. So it's like he had, that like to me, he had like five, six things that he was considering for each individual shot. And as a young golfer, it's like, man, man, how do you do that all at the same time? Like holding those six things. Yeah, you know what the order is. But I found out over time that they aren't at the same time. They're at different times in the swing. So once you, you have a make sure your alignment's good, make sure your grip is good, make sure your posture is good, whatever it is, that's like check, check, check when you're about ready to fly a plane. Now you get into the swing. Now fly the plane. Okay, what do I have to do? Okay, I have a little idea in the beginning of my swing. Now that's that's checked off. Now, now in the trim, make sure I start down with a, a you know motion over to my left foot or whatever the case may be for that particular time. So you organize your your mind so that you can focus in a time sequential manner that allows you to perform execute the shot that you want to do. So that can be a variety of different things to uh to focus in on. Sometimes uh under the greatest degree of stress, most players have uh, something in their starting position and and like one thing in their swing or one thing in the load, one thing in the unload. Uh I find that the be- the best players of all time were able to do more than that. And the reason they were able to do more than that is because their awareness was so great that a a little uh uh thought was was enough to trigger a a physical uh, um, uh let's say a single physical motion or a physical uh attitude during the the swing inside of the whole of the of the two second swing that you're able to do so the more aware you are, you can break these. These awarenesses down into milliseconds. You know, most of the students that I teach in the beginning, if I can get them to think about one thing during a two-second time frame inside of their golf swing, that's really good. A a high-level tour player, he could think of, I don't know, a hundred, a thousand, a uh, uh, time frames of one thing. I mean, it happens like in in one. You know, little flash of time and he can put those things together or see it as an overall flow. So you can pulse back and forth between the very, very specific to the very, very general. And really the game dictates your ability to do this kind of stuff as you want to be better and better and better. The ability to have time sequence focus and the ability to layer your, your Skills into one thing, uh, is a, is a skill that, you know, every top player has. And as you get down, you know, from a whatever, a 20 handicap down to a 10, down to a 3, down to a a plus 2, plus 5, and then plus 8, like a, like a tour player, that ability is dictated to you. If you're unable to do that, then at some point, the game, like, stops you. It's like you, you've reached your optimal performance and, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's why it's, uh, it's not that easy to be great at anything. But That is a dictated thing from the game.
0: So Bob, let's talk about that for, for those of us that come out and we come see you in Las Vegas at your school. How do you go yep. about assessing what you need to teach us?
1: Well, I'll, I'll tell you, what I've put together over time and I didn't have this in the very, very beginning. It took me a few years to put some of these things together. I call I call them uh, time-tested fundamentals. I trademarked the term time-tested fundamentals. So, you know, I, I tried to be, I wanted to be the best player in the world. You know, that one week, uh, Bay Hill, you know, you know, you could argue that maybe I was the best player in the world at that one week. But overall, I was probably top 20. That was probably my best. So that means there's, you know, 18, 19, 20 guys that can beat me regularly week after week after week. And I was not satisfied with that at all. So I started looking at the commonality of all of the greatest players. So in in golf, in professional golf, uh, six majors or more, and you are a, a, a historically great player. We've allowed some of the five guys in there. Seve was in there, Seve Ballesteros, uh Peter Thompson, Phil Mickelson was in that group until he won the PGA last year. he's six, so he is he's in the uh in the in the six or better group now. But all of these guys ended up doing ninety nine percent of all of the same things. Otherwise they wouldn't have been able to be historically great over a an extended period of time. So What I did is I synthesized all these commonalities and I put them together as what I call time tested fundamentals. So when someone comes to me, I always interview them. Tell me about your game. What issues do you have? Why aren't you playing better than you, than you currently are? What do you want out of our time together? I always, almost always ask this one question. If our time together works out perfectly, what would happen? So then I get an idea of what they they want to accomplish, and most of the time that is uh, a good bit less than we eventually end up doing. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, all these things that I, I I I get a picture of of what after seeing a few swings of what this person is able to do with if we improve their flexibility, if we improve their uh, suppleness, if they, uh, uh, you know, if I'm able to harness their, their agility, get them into balance, then all of a sudden their shots will take on a repetitive manner and they'll be able to anticipate their results. So generally I start with how someone puts their hands on the club. Now if you look at, at any, um, of the greatest uh, uh players' books that they've written. The grip is like one of, if not the first thing that they always talk about. And frankly, if you're unwilling to put your hands on in a manner that is whatever, 95 plus percent of what the greatest players in the, uh, of history have, have done, you are not going to allow yourself to go down the most effective pathway of learning. So I generally start with the grip, starting position, loading motion, unloading motion, finish the whole, the whole thing. And then we, then we work more specifically, but I don't always do that with people. A lot of times you, you get something that is so against their goals that we work on that first. Like, you know, someone is uh you know they're hitting behind the ball they're topping they're sculling and they're finishing with you know 70 80% of their weight on their right foot at the finish for a right-handed golfer so i might with that person hey well, wait a minute now let's uh, do you know how to throw a ball so they throw the ball and it's like man you got like a a a 2 handicap throw all your weight went to your left foot and why do you why do you do that? Well, I try to keep my head down or whatever. You, you start trying to figure out where their swing came from, what they've been thinking about, what they've been taught, because the swing that they're bringing me is based on their belief system, uh, what they've trained themselves to do, and their physical ability. So I. Very often, we'll get somebody to just go to the finishing position and, and actually finish like a golfer, and then we come back to the starting position, and then maybe we go to the grip. So that's kind of the fun of teaching for me. I never know exactly what I'm going to tell a person in order, but it always ends up being the same stuff. There's Depending on how you uh, uh, organize, The time tested fundamentals, there are, there are, I I generally put them in, in the eight, there are eight of them. And I just go around that circle again and again and again, picking things off until you're able to do all, all eight of them. If you can do all eight of them, you're generally a person that can shoot in the seventies with, uh, I would say average athletic ability and an ability to focus pretty well and, and you work on it. So, uh, we've, you know, done some pretty amazing things with, you know, 2025 handicaps becoming mini tour, uh, winners and, uh, you know, uh, young kids, uh, you know, they, they cry during their first lesson and they become a U.S. amateur champion and a, a, a PGA tour winner, you know, so it's, it's just absolutely incredible what this stuff does. I don't see it out there, uh, in in the teaching world uh it's it's reproducible for myself and for the students and it's worked very very well
0: so let's take that a a half step further bob because you wrote a book titled the absolute best grip in the world how to finally take control of your golf game talk about what the best grip in the world is is it the same for all of us
1: well again it depends on what you want uh You know, the best players that have ever played have had their hands. The most basic relationship of the hands are the palms facing each other. The palms are also in the same line as the leading edge of the club set. The palms of the hands are perpendicular to the body alignment. Okay, so that's the relationship that... Just about everyone. Actually, Lee Trevino was the only aberration there. In his prime, his left hand was a little stronger than that. His right hand was perfect. But uh, I, th- I always found it interesting as a as a young player, and then as a teacher looking at this stuff. You know what to really teach people. Uh, you know the, the the best grip I've ever seen was Hogan. Now, okay, so well, he's the best ball striker ever. Well, the second best grip I've ever seen was Jack Nicholson. Oh, well, he's the 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 best player ever. Oh, well, uh, you know, Sam Steed is the third best grip I've ever seen. And at that point, he was he had won more tournaments than anybody else. So you go, really? Do I need to know anything else? Do I need to know anything besides? And then you go, you start looking at some of the other. Male and female, people that have just dominated the sport in their day and became historically great players, and they all did basically the same thing. So when the hands become the club face, now all of a sudden, the club face is wherever the hands are during the swing. So if it starts in a square position, it will, if, if the grip is maintained, the club face will always be square to the hand during the swing. So over time, everybody reacts to that relationship of the hand to the club set. Now if let's let's say the hands are both rotated to the right. The left hand is the palm of the hand is facing down to the ground, the palm of the right hand is facing up, which would be commonly known as a, uh, a stronger grip. If you come into impact and don't influence how the hands come back through the ball, the palms of the hands always want to finish straight up and down, vertical to the ground coming into impact. So if you start with your hands rotated to the right, the club face is always going to tend to come in slightly close. So if that person swings naturally, that person will always hook the ball. So, he's gonna to have to make adjustments inside of his swing to get the club face to come back to square. Person has both his hands rotated the other way, so the palm of the left hand is facing to the, to the sky a bit and the palm of the right hand is down. That club face, the palms are always gonna come back straight up and down, that club face is always gonna be open. So that person is always going to tend to slice the ball. So that person's gonna end up, he's gonna be swinging last. He's going to aim left so because the ball is always going to be curving to the right and he's going to get into that groove of, of understanding of the game. And without actually changing how the, the grip goes on to the club, that person will never actually make that adjustment over time. He might have a little tip or something to do it on a short term basis, but long term it'll never happen. So if you really want to be the best that you can be and see what your optimal performance is, the game, again, dictates these things to you. You have to have a grip that will allow you to go down a path of least resistance in learning. So once you do that, then thing. okay, well, at least I got one thing. Good. I, I got my grip and the club face in a relationship that is like the greatest players of all time. Anybody can do that. It takes no talent, takes a lot of work, takes a lot of perseverance to, to make it yours. But that leads you down a path of a, of a proper starting position. And then that encourages the loading motion to be good, which encourages the, the, uh, the unloading motion to be proper, which gets you into the finishing. And all these things, they just, the dominoes start to fall. So again, Do you have to start with the grip? No, but if the form of everything else is in a world-class manner, if your grip is too strong, you're going to be fighting a hook. If the grip is too weak, you're going to be fighting a a fade or a slice, And the game will bring you back to, oh, well, that son of a gun, that guy was right. So generally, I start there, and then we move on. Now, you know, the book that I wrote is the most detailed literary piece ever written about how to be, how to create a world-class grip. And I wrote that for anybody who wants to be their absolute best. And for, you know, for someone like myself, you know, as a young kid growing up, is there a blueprint for greatness? So Matt, if you could just put a, a, a good athlete, young, young kid, uh, whatever, 12, 30, 15 years old. And this kid has a world class grip. He will generally figure out most of the other stuff that, that needs to be done for him to, to excel in the game. But, uh, it works. I, you know, I've had 85 year old students and it works from the youngest all the way to the oldest. And, uh, the outcomes are, are so, so fantastic. And mo- very often so surprising to the student. I have no idea. No one's ever paid it, any attention to this. And we, we do it together. And, uh, you know, short term improvement is, is almost always quite dramatic. But really more importantly, we lay the foundation for their continued improvement over time. All
0: right. So now I'm going to get personal with you for, for my golf swing based on what I just heard you say because. What? And I want to give a visual for, for our listeners. As I take, as I grip the golf club and I'm a right-handed player, my left hand, um, I typically see two and a half, maybe three knuckles. And then I overlap and then I've got the little, my, my right index finger is sort of like outstaced, uh, got some space between my, my uh, right index finger and my right middle finger, sort of like in a trigger. But t- talk, right. give us a visual. What, if I'm looking down the golf and, you know, looking straight down at my grip, what should I see?
1: Well, I, you know, I would, first of all, I would, uh, Chris, let's hit some ball. Let's, 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 <laughs> show me what you got. Okay. Show me what you I'm got. A, I'm a
0: pull hooker. That's my problem. If I, if I have a miss, well, I'm pull hooking.
1: Oh, so I guess maybe, you know, you, you heard what I said. You go, really? Yep. Is that why I hook? It? I thought right. I like came over the top. I thought I did yes. this. I thought I didn't start down, blah 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 blah. You know, uh you're in the world of golf in a different way, but you must love the game. I do. Yeah, I I I'm pretty I'm pretty sure you've played and practiced a lot. So if your belief system was correct and you did the right thing, I don't think you would be fighting a pull hook. So you go, okay. If that's what is why I that's why do you think you hooked the ball? Well, then they go, Well, I come over it, my you know, I blah blah you know, whatever the case may be, and they never go to the root cause. So if your left hand is rotated a bit strong, yep. then and your right hand fits in, I would think that the palm of your right hand is facing a little bit to the sky. Is that correct?
0: Uh I don't think so my I, I, I you know i I think I've got it you know kind of perpendicular and it's in the same position that you mentioned with the club face. It's just my left hand is is rotated okay. strong,
1: and you're right handed yes, sir, okay, so so your right hand, if your right hand dominates and the left hand just lays long and doesn't do that much, your right hand would bring the club face back to the square to some degree. So I can't imagine that you look at all the time. So go,
0: Not hey, all the time. All the that's time. my miss.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's your myth. So anybody in the history of the game that had their left hand too strong, the left hand always, the, the hand always wants to come back to vertical through impact. Naturally. So the most natural golf swing, the most under pressure you are, physics tends to take over. So, Really, the best swings that you make are the ones that you pull hook. Those are are the most natural movements. So if you were to rotate your hand, I don't know what it is, a quarter quarter of an inch? I don't know. I'd have to check to see what it is. You want the heel of your left hand on the top of the club. The last three fingers are underneath. The heel of the hand is just about even with the right side of the shaft. It's just about even with the right side of the shaft. Now, you have equal pressure with the, the, the heel of the hand and the last three fingers. So the heel of the hand is pressing down into the shaft, into the grip. The last three fingers are pressing up. So you have equal pressure on both sides. And you have equal pressure on the, on the left and right. So right now, your left hand is not creating equal pressure on the golf club relative to the club face with your left hand, the right Mm -hmm. hand may be. If the right hand is on square and the left hand is on strong, then I would think that your hands separate a bit either up at the top of the backswing, down through impact, or certainly at the finish. Is that is that the case for you?
0: Yeah, I would say that's right.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the reason is because your hands can't fit together because one is rotated in a different manner than the other. So, I mean, why do you have your right hand on in a what would what would be a, a square position? Why would you do that? Yeah.
0: So I think, you know, my right hand is square because that's where I want the club face. You know, I'm trying to make sure the club face comes square on the way down. Now, it makes sense to me what you're saying is since the hands naturally want to finish both hands, want to finish square. That yeah. that is, you know, now that's why I'm not, I'm inconsistent. Because I got to time it right. right.
1: Yeah, a lot of times, right-handed people they have their most awareness with their right side, right? So I see that pretty often, actually. Uh, What what kind of golfer are you, Chris? What what, what do you? I'm a a twelve.
0: No, I'm a I'm a low eighties, mid eighties player.
1: Yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, So generally, you know, right-hand golfers have a lot of awareness in faith where their right hand is. So it's like right hand, club face, right hand, club face. And their left hand isn't as educated. It's not as smart. (laughs) It's not as aware. So they put their left hand on very often any which way, You know, sometimes it's weak, and that person fights a face. If it's not a little bit strong, they fight a hook. So all we have to do is really get their hands so that the palms of their hands face each other. And all of a sudden, it's like the club face does not want to come back to close. doesn't want to. So the hook has been eliminated. A draw, you can still draw the ball, but you can't hook it. Which is is mind-boggling for many people that have been fighting a hook their entire lives. There you go.
0: Arm raised in the air.
1: They put that thing on there and they make a swing and they, you know, their, their, their right hand is like still searching for the squareness, but the left isn't messing things up. So the ball, you know, generally goes out forward. Now the left hand has to figure out how to, how to come into impact properly. But, you know, if you're, if you're fighting a hook, whole hook and shooting 85, I mean, my goodness. I mean, why, why wouldn't you be, why, why, if you just, if you stopped hooking the ball, what would you shoot? Right. Probably five, five shots better. I don't know. I mean, you yeah. got to make a bogey, a few bogeys, maybe a double bogey every round, maybe a couple double bogeys every round. You yep. probably make about, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'd be guessing you're probably making 10 pars, 11 pars a day. And then the other stuff is like, wow, well, it's not that bad. And you make a couple bogeys, and then there's always like four or five holes that that's where you're really your bad score. That's where you're 85.
0: Hundred percent.
1: So if you can eliminate the the worst shot that a player creates for themselves, then all of a sudden it's like, you got to be kidding me! I don't have to deal with this issue on a golf course anymore. You mean I could actually Go through it in an aggressive manner the way my personality is, and I want to you know rip it out there and I'm not worried about hitting it over in the water or in the desert or or in the rock or the trees over over to my left, or you know anybody that hooks it hit hits a high push right they all every everybody does that because they they get tired of they can't hit it left on that bolt and then they just they push it off to the right somewhere so over time you eliminate both those things. So that the ball generally goes down the golf course. Now, in a, at a high level, if you're starting position, all the aspects of the starting position, your loading motion is pretty good, your unload looks pretty good. All of a sudden, the swing goes down the fairway. Or the swing goes down a portion of the fairway. You know, high level golfers, they go down slivers of the fairway. But for an amateur golfer, it's like, if you're, if you're a, you know, a good athlete and you work on your game, if you're a fundamental player, you do these time tested fundamentals, going from 85 to, I don't know, 77 to 80 is like, it's, it's as soon as you can get used to getting your grip on that way and hitting, hitting a number of balls. I don't know how many balls it's going to take you. You know, sometimes people do it in the first shot. Sometimes it takes 150 balls to actually get them to realize what their hands and their body has to do through impact to get it to uh, to behave properly. So I never know when that's going to happen. but It's a hundred percent. You know, I, for my long term experience, it, it's it's literally a hundred percent success rate.
0: Oh, you, well, you got me it. excited to get out on the on the range. I got I got to promise you that. I can't wait to see what that does. Marvelous. Bob. Let's kind of. Let's bring it home and put it all together. Oftentimes, you know, we get so mechanical. You talk about swing thoughts and that sort of thing. We, we get overwhelmed. How do we take what you're teaching, like this piece with the grip and then the mental approach? How do we kind of put it all together and then go
1: out and get started? Well, you know, to be an accomplished golfer, there's really four things that you have to do. And this would be kind of like in the mind map that we talked about in the center of our page. Okay. So you want to have a great starting position. You want to have a great finishing position. You want to have the ability to repeat the rhythm or what I call the beat of your swing. You have to be able to repeat the beat and you have to do these things within, within balance. So in like a one sentence golf swing. Okay. Golf swing. Oh my God. Books have been written. I'm going to, I'm going to put the golf swing in one sentence for you. The starting position connects to the finishing position within the confines and protection of beat and bounce, rhythm and bounce. Start, finish, beat, bounce. Okay? So you go, okay, I'll buy into that. So how do I get a a great starting position? Well, the most basic component of the starting position is the absolute best grip in the world. Okay. So in order to have a great starting position you have to have a great grip. Okay? So, in order to have a finishing position, the most basic component of the finishing position, wherever your left foot is at a draft, whatever angle that creates, whatever space that's in, you want to occupy that space at the finish. So the most basic component of the starting position is the grip. The most basic component of the finishing position is the stability of the left foot. So start, finish, beat, balance. So I would get my students to master those four things first. Start, finish, beat, balance. Now most people bring me, they repeat their beat. They're just, they just swing uh, at, at an angle relative to their target that is way off. So, so they, they, they can't anticipate the results. So we start with that, so that would be the center of our page, and we work out, and then we come back. so the greatest players in the world have the most stable and basic things they have mastered these basic fundamentals of the of the of the golf swing and you, you can go on the, the mental side and and the learning side as well but uh, that's what I would get I get all my students to do a, a, a proper starting position allows. For the desired result, the proper finishing position assures the desired result. Fantastic, Bob.
0: Let our listeners know how can they stay up to date with you. Check out your website. How can they find you online? Find you on social media, and more importantly, find you to come get some
1: lessons. <laughs> well, you can uh, you can go to uh, BobBeimanGolf dot com uh, or go to Golf School dot com, and uh, uh, you can have the the greatest golf learning experience of your life. I mean, I I, I, I would love to, I love to have anybody who wishes to learn. Doesn't matter right left handed male female young older, uh, and we're out here in sunny Las Vegas and and ready for you.
0: And remind them the name of your book and where they can get a copy of it.
1: It's called the absolute best grip in the world how to finally take control of your golf game, and that is on Amazon. Just uh, type in my name, Bob Byman, go on Amazon Books, and it'll be right there.
0: Bob, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of this show. You're fantastic, my friend. I'm telling you, you got me excited. I can't wait to get out on out the uh, <laughs> practice range, change that grip up, and see uh, the great things it's going to do for my golf swing and my ball flight. Uh, I can't thank you enough for that well, tip and, like I say, your time today.
1: You bet, Chris. It was a pleasure. I'll tell you, the hour went by very, very quickly, didn't it? I I love talking to you. Thank you so much.
0: I appreciate you.
1: Bob, take care. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up again soon. Bye, Chris. Take care.
0: See you, Bob. That was Bob Byman. B-Y-M-A-N is the spelling of his last name. Again, the title of the book, The Absolute Best Grip in the World. How to Finally Take Control of Your Game. I promise you. I can't wait to try out the uh, grip change that he and I just talked about. You can follow him online at BobBymanGolf.com and also lessons at GoToGolfSchool.com. Folks, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to continue to make Next on the Tee a part of your golfing content. You can subscribe to the show on every major podcast app. I'll be back in a few weeks to kick off season number nine of the show. Until then, hit them straight, my friends.